Price, that's the number one technical indicator. You do best by investing for the longer term. If you can't explain what the business is doing, then that is a huge red flag. Some technological change is going to put you out of business. It really is a genuinely extraordinary situation. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Frank E. Holmes is CEO and Chief Investment Officer of US Global Investors. Under Frank's direction, the company has exceeded all expectations in the highly competitive ETF market, having launched the Jets ETF in 2015, a fund that shot to prominence this year, a darling of Robin Hood traders, and which now commands nearly $3 billion AUM. Frank made his name in mining, receiving various awards from the Mining Journal, including Fund Manager of the Year in 2006 and Best America's Based Fund Manager in 2016. Other achievements include the co-authorship of The Gold Watcher, Demystifying Gold Investing, a book published with John Katz in 2008. Frank and US global investors have looked beyond traditional markets too, investing in the first publicly traded cryptocurrency mining firm, Hive, in 2017. Frank shares his plans for Hive and how the company's stock has surged over 1,570% this year. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the podcast, Frank. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, How's your week been so far? It's been a great week. And uh, so far this year, I've been very blessed. Good, good. Glad to hear it. Um, Okay, so uh, as we discussed before, I want to get straight into the interview. And I want to start talking uh, about a particular product that's caught my eye, uh, as well as many others this year. uh, And that's the Jets ETF. So it's been in the media spotlight. Uh, It's on an upward trend right now. I mean, it's climbed nearly 40% since the beginning of last month, I think, when I just checked before our call. Uh, So firstly, why do you think this product has captured investors' imaginations to such an extent? Well, what happened is, is that my board was pushing me to get into the ETF space because mutual funds were becoming just such a, a burden and expense, regulatory cost. Uh, you add them all up, but ETFs seem to be a lot more uh, attractive and attracting funds. And, uh, and so I've been, as a U.S. global investor, traveling all over the world, looking at gold deposits and various resource projects from oil and gas, uh, the globe. I had noticed in the in 12, 212, 213, 214, my options for flying were shrinking and the cost of my tickets were rising and, and because I'm flying all over the world. So I said, you know, maybe I can get a product here, uh, do the ETF business. There's no one else in the space. And I started doing fundamental analysis. And then I started using a quant approach and doing all these regressional scenarios. And that's where we came out to launch uh, U.S. Global uh, Global Airline uh, ETF. And um, the first five years was just got up to $100 million. Uh, and it was sort of interesting that it exploded uh, uh, with the beginning of COVID, that the uh, fund had decreased from 33, 35 trading range beginning of the year. It had fallen down to 11 and change, $12 range. And, uh, and that was the bottom. And, and so I became really trying to figure out where is everyone getting all their information? Uh, I know why I created it. And that was the exciting journey for me. Uh, I, I said, I guess it, it captured the imagination of investors, but that's been no more felt other than in the retail space. So retail investors. No, no, no. That, that, see, that's a great It's not retail, just retail. What happens in a robust ecosystem is like the Great Barrier Reef, where you have yeah. all different sizes of fish. So what happened was that in the 90s, if I go back to the 90s, baby boomers discovered mutual funds and tech stocks. And there was basically no millennials really coming of any size into the capital markets. And what we found from research said that most of them were caught up with experiencing the world. Well, these kids knew everything about best hotels, best flights, what seat to sit in, uh, they were always, as soon as they made enough money, they were traveling someplace. So all of a sudden they're stuck at home, but they know all the path and they start going on the internet and they start doing this research to say, well, the last three crises, a year later, uh, the airlines in the stocks are up 80 to 120%. That's what happened after 9-11, that's what happened after SARS, that's what happened after 2009, uh, 2009 
financial crisis. So you saw them coming in, and that volume of small people pecking away, predominantly coming through the Robin Hoods, where there's commission-free trading, Acorn, Schwab is now commission-free, TD Waterhouse is commission-free. They started attracting all these online people stuck at home, trying to make money. And this allowed the hedge guy to come in and says, you know what, I want to go short of Ryanair and American Airlines because uh, they have so much debt, and uh, but I want to hedge my bet by buying $10 million worth of the Jets ETF because they could see all this volume. Well, that begets more volume. And then now today we have an insurance company uh, out of Israel that has $100 million invested, uh, and, and they're up money. So I think it was this, this the millennials allowed the ecosystem to become more robust, which attracted the dolphins, the whales, and the sharks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, that's such a great analogy. Yeah. That really sort of makes it clearer for me and hopefully for the listeners too. Uh, so I, I want to get an idea of what we should expect from the Jets ETF looking forward. We've got an effective COVID vaccine sort of in the offing, initial rollouts uh, begun in the UK. So do you expect this upward trajectory that we've seen in the Jets ETF recently? Do you expect that to continue? What's important for a historical, like I said to you, that a lot of people played it for this tactical bounce is that in every time we've had these bounces over 12 months, you have these big corrections of 10%. So what investors have to realize is that when you go into something like a Jets ETF, the DNA of, the, of its volatility is greater because the airlines have a greater volatility and historically, and that's predominantly because their biggest cost is oil. So oil is the most volatile of everything. It's more volatile than gold, the stock market, over one day, over 10 days, over six months. So that's what we're seeing that is taking place. It's this, and so the airlines will have these big 10% declines as it marches back up to this rebound. And if in the next six months, if it gets back to the $33 level, we're still seeing a huge return on investors' capital. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I want to return to a few of those points further further down in the interview. But uh, before we move away from Jets, um, I saw the ETF. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but it looks to command $2.76 billion in assets. That that figure could be higher uh, now. Obviously, it's changing all the time. Yeah, it's it's a remarkable, but it, it fell to $35 million. Uh, we know the data, they stopped providing the data in mid-August, but there used to be a data source or how many shareholders are in an ETF on Robinhood. And we saw just before Buffett went negative on the industry, and a week after Buffett was all negative about the airlines, sold all the stocks, um, they jumped 50%. It was a massive surge. And we had something like 25,000, I think, uh, retail investors had made a, a great score, and those that have stayed long so far are up nicely on their, on their investment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I guess the question that follows for me then, like, has has the popularity of this product, this ETF, exceeded your expectations? Oh, massively, massively, and and it's been a wonderful windfall for U.S. Global. We're a public company. Uh, our ticker on Nasdaq is GROW. Easy to remember and grow. <laughs> and it's been a game changer. I uh, we now have uh, over three billion in assets, and our revenue has gone from six million to eighteen million. Uh, as a state at this level, that's a huge increase. And we reported last quarter this big sea change uh, of showing up in our revenue and cash flow. So I think as everyone is happy at U.S. Global. Uh, the the shareholders are happy, the traders, because they like the daily volatility of jets. Uh, it's got that complete day traders, tactical investors, value investors. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, it, it seems a, a win-win for, for everyone all around at the moment. And um, and a really, really exciting uh, product that I want to talk more about uh, later on. But uh, let's, let's step away from Jets uh, and uh, come to your background. Uh, I'm, con- I'm conscious that some of our listeners won't be familiar with your work. So I want to explore your background, kind of how you've come to your position today. So first off, where did it all begin for you? What was your first job in finance? Well, Hayden, it goes way back there. In, uh, <laughs> I was an entrepreneur that uh, paid for my university. I was with another colleague, a friend, uh, tra- busing people to rock concerts and uh, NHL games uh, from rural. And I'm originally from Canada. So tell about my accent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I like to tell people I've been here 30 years in Texas. So I'm a Tex-Can. 
the outcome back A. But I first was, you know, I was an entrepreneur and uh, allowed me to pay for my own university. And then I went into investments because I thought I had good intuition. I didn't realize that I had to still work 60 hours a week. So it wasn't just uh, intuition. It was in synchronicity and luck. It was just a lot of uh, effort. But I love research and I love the process of, of finding and discovering new companies. And I was with an entrepreneurial shop in Toronto. Uh, and my first uh, IPO I worked on, uh, going from a research analyst into corporate finance, uh, was a company called Franco Nevada, which uh, is now today the largest gold royalty company in the world. And I was blessed to be able to have mentors like Seymour Schulich, who was one of Canada's biggest philanthropists, that was a creator of that, along with Pierre Lassonde. And that was sort of the, the journey uh, of being involved with the creation of new companies and new people. And, and I had lots of expertise, I think, in, in the gold space, even though I'm not a geologist. I was a member of the Toronto Mining and Geologist Engineers Club uh, and uh, would always go as a young analyst over to functions there to hear uh, the difference in the rocks and where new discoveries were taking place. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I was going to mention that, you know, you're a mining expert. Um, you, you've uh, won numerous awards in the space. The Best America's Based Fund Manager I saw in 2016. Uh, and that was from the Mining Journal. Uh, and, and that's one of many when I was reading about uh, your career today. So how did you come to specialize in that segment of the market? Why, why was it of particular interest? Well, I remember studying, I was in pre-med, and, uh, and I always loved sciences. Sciences are so helpful to being an investor. If you understand the laws of physics, then you can understand macro forces and movement of capital. Uh, if you want to understand bio, uh, entrepreneurs better, biological models of survivorship, uh, first mover advantage to survive and thrive, uh, are all based on biological models. Those sciences allowed me to really... Uh, prosper in this business. And one of the things uh, is a book written years ago by Think and Grow Rich. Uh, and, and I remember, I think 100 million copies have been sold. Uh, and it was a pilot was telling me that I must read this book. And there's a chapter in there that said, you have to focus on becoming an expert in some industry or category. That's what every highly successful person, and they're just passionate about all the parts and moving parts that are involved with that industry. And, uh, and so with that, Canada being known for mining, Toronto is the, still the mining capital of the world. From a financial point of view, you have over 100, uh, what they call buy-side analysts in mining and oil and gas in Toronto, and another 100 sell-side analysts. So it's, it's a rich area of, for, for mining. It's interesting if you look at that model in America, 50% uh, of biotechnology is San Diego and Boston. Uh, software is Seattle and San Francisco. Uh, and so you get these pockets of intellectual capital, and clearly Toronto is that space. If you're going to go into mining uh, Africa um, and Eastern Europe, et cetera, well, the UK was always in London, was always the best place. We had the most analysts and most coverage. Uh, so that was one reason why I would quite often, if I was going to South Africa, see if I could go to London and spend several days going around and seeing the analysts in London to find out what their reconnaissance is and their information. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of within that space, I guess gold uh, seems to sort of obviously pique your interest and your your intrigue. You even wrote a uh, book on the subject, I believe, uh, The Gold Watcher, Demystifying Gold Investing. And uh, yeah, I, I read the, the full word in a couple of chapters before the call, found it really interesting. So can, can we uh, just kind of let our listeners know what it's all about? Maybe you can give a quick pricey. The Gold Watcher has two authors, and the first author is a wonderful South African gentleman that talked a lot about the history of gold. Mm -hmm. Gold, and uh, I was more caught up with um, when I look at look, how do you pick gold stocks and, and what is the life cycle of a mine and the five M's of mining. Like, they understand how there are, there are three major levels of risk when you're looking at a gold mining stock for simplicity. In addition to the price of gold movement, there's no doubt gold movement drives revenue and cash flow and sentiment, uh, but you have to really know where you are on that life cycle. The life cycle of exploration to development to production is very similar to biotechnology. Uh, the exploration phase, one has to go through in the US, the FDA, or the other one has to go through the EPA. 
Uh, and, and so it's recognizing the volatility, the risks, and that's what I try to educate investors. But on the macro forces for gold, what I try to highlight is what I've coined as the great love trade. And you have to really respect this. Gold is so important for love, love for your family, love for your country, uh, love for your, your children, love for your wife. And when we go to China and India, it's a classic example that 30 years ago, they represented basically 10% of consumption of gold and more than 60% for jewelry. And we fast track forward and we've had nothing but rising GDP per capita out of China and India, affectionately known as Chindia. Um, they are 40% of today's population, but their rapid growth in GDP per capita is now their 53% of all gold demand. And, and what I've tried to highlight for people is that countries that own gold, when during World War II, uh, Churchill got his gold over to Canada, and that gold was so important to be able to get funding uh, with, the, with the Americans to build planes and tanks, et cetera, and ship them back to fight the, uh, the European-German war. So it's in the, those that got out of Vietnam, the Vietnamese people that were out to get out early, they had gold. In fact, in modern day, the Syrians, the first to get out of the disaster in Syria uh, 10 years ago as it evolved, uh, were those that had gold. Uh, that's how they bought their way out. So if you love your family, you give gold. Uh, and in China, you can see that if it's the year of the tiger, you get a gold tiger. If you're born in the year of the, of the bull, you get a gold bull. Uh, it's recognizing this sort of cultural affinity for 5,000 years is showing up. And it's the underpinning. So every time gold has a big sell-off, we see the love trade comes in and it takes it off. Then you have fear, which is about 40% of the short-term volatility. And that comes from government policies of devaluing the country's currency. Uh, and, and that's what leads to the sort of the surges we get to higher highs in the price of gold. Yeah, and it, as you said, it's so sort of central to cultures all all over the world. And and as you again, you said, yeah, it underpins global economies and the way global economies work. But obviously, we're getting a lot of chatter around new technologies, blockchain, for example, uh, and how that might disrupt uh, that state of affairs. What's what's your take on that? To a certain degree, but let, let's just go back to the year two thousand. Mm-hmm. This century. This is 21 years now, approaching 21 years. Gold has outperformed, has been, I'm sorry, gold has been uh, up 80% of the time. That's remarkable. Gold has outperformed the S&P 500 almost three to one. Uh, So gold is an important component of an asset class. And a big reason for that is because it's the fourth most liquid asset in the world. It has much portability. Now when you come to crypto, uh, and it was the idea that I couldn't launch a, a Bitcoin ETF because the concerns with anti-money laundering laws. So yeah. I went into the mining, so launched the first uh, public company mining Ethereum and then Bitcoin called High Blockchain, uh, which this year, I was just getting the data, it's traded almost 2 billion shares and is up 1,000%. And it moves with Bitcoin Ethereum the way gold stocks move with the direction of gold. It's a proxy. For that, what I have seen is that the adoption of Bitcoin Ethereum is growing and it's growing rapidly as an alternative source, but I don't think it's going to replace gold. You need electricity. So you don't need electricity for gold and for bartering. And, and uh, central banks are keep basically the, the ability to keep gold as, a, as, as I said, the fourth most liquid asset class. It's not going to go away overnight. Now, the new kids coming on may t- turn around to take a look at buying Bitcoin and Ethereum, but I have noticed a big pushback still by the public because of all the hacking on these exchanges and all the negative news. So what's happened is that Hive has become a proxy for those in this space. And, and that's what I've noticed. So we don't have an, because we mine a, a virgin coin, it doesn't have any touch to it that would be a criminal or et cetera. And we can sell that into the capital markets globally. And then we then pay for electricity with it. We don't have an AML concern. So that's one reason why I went into that adventure investing, I like to call it. Yeah, that was a strategic investment on the behalf of US global investors, I believe in 2017. Um, it was. Can you, uh, 
can you kind of give us a bit more information about what the company does on a day-to-day basis, just to make it a little bit less abstract for, for people that aren't familiar with Hive? High, high blockchain sources green energy only. And we source the energy in northern Sweden, in Bowden, which is basically just south of the Arctic Circle. Uh, and we do it also in uh, Iceland. And we do it, which is geothermal energy. One is hydro, one is geothermal. And then recently in Quebec, uh, La Chute, which is hydroelectricity. And we're working on an acquisition, which is still not complete as due diligence, uh, but it's to expand the operations of buying data centers now in New Brunswick, which is about 50 megawatts of uh, energy consumption. In Northern Sweden, we, we have 20 megawatts uh, of capacity. And, uh, and then we have to spend a lot of money on GPU chips or ASICs chips for, Bit- for Bitcoin mining. But we source green energy, we use these the technology, and we mine in the cloud. Great. Okay. That's, uh, yeah, because it, it was it, mining cryptocurrencies on, on that scale wasn't something that I was familiar with. So that's made it a, a hell of a lot clearer. Um, but what's, uh, as, as an investor myself, and uh, we, we have a lot of retail uh, and even institutional investors listening in, what, that, what will excite them, I suppose, more than anything is how well this company, this stock has performed uh, this year. Uh, I saw since the middle of last month, I believe, uh, Hive's up 130%. Uh, and if we take that back to the start of the year, it's up over a huge 1,256%, which is, which is extremely impressive growth. So what's been the key tailwind for Hive, do you think? Well, first of all, we had a takeover. We had a major shareholder, and, um, and they just were not cutting for us and uh, for many reasons. But that's not as important as that uh, they're gone. And uh, we got total control, and our results came out this week. On Monday, we filed and did a press release, this uh, earnings webcast on Tuesday of this week, and we reported in the summer that we made $9 million. It's the biggest for any of these crypto companies to make in one quarter. So what we show is that we have the capacity, and we own a lot of these coins too. Uh, we, we bank the coins, we sell them to pay for electricity. We don't sell 100% of them, so we always have some inventory of them. So from that end, we are a, this wonderful proxy, and we have institutional investors. We have ETF investors. Uh, Fidelity was one of the early investors. It was so key for us, our success was Fidelity wrote big checks for us to build out the beginning of, of our infrastructure. Uh, in Canada. Uh, so we have that complete ecosystem, the retail, the family offices and institutions and uh, ETFs. Yeah, absolutely. And um, with uh, a lot of investors listening in again that maybe have exposure to or, or trades or investments on Bitcoin or other crypt- cryptocurrencies directly, how how much do you expect Hive's sort of stock performance to correlate with that of you know, direct exposure to cryptocurrencies? Is it completely uncorrelated or not? It's a, it's a great question, Hayden, because it's correlating over 92% of the time. Wow. Uh, Ethereum's up 3% today, we're up 3%. Yesterday it's up, we're up. Uh, you know, if I look at 100 days, uh, 90 of those 100 days is going to be in the direction of uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum that day. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, quite an interesting way to get exposure to this this nascent market. Um, so yeah, one, one for our listeners to watch out for. We trade in Germany. We're very liquid. We trade over the counter of the US and we yep. trade uh, in Canada. But the vision that we have is to be, get listed in other exchanges uh, around the world so that Hive trades like its own cryptocurrency. It, it becomes a proxy for all those people reluctant to go buy Ethereum or Bitcoin. They're using us as that proxy. And because crypto trades, these coins trade 24-7, we're trying to figure out what's the best way. So we figure that we have to get listed globally. We have shareholders from 180 countries. Uh, so we have even the most liquid name of all the crypto stocks. Yeah, okay. Really interesting. Um, and so uh, you mentioned a, an acquisition sort of pending there. Uh, and I want to get back to the company itself. So what, you know, what does the future hold for Hive? Can you talk about any sort of exciting plans on the horizon? Well, one of the big things is notice is we want to have control of our destiny by owning the data centers and be able to lock in uh, inexpensive electricity. It's 
Uh, I've just noticed that it's, it's just better audit processes, uh, it's just better controls. And, uh, and also when you're, you have your own data centers, they have a longevity to them that's different. So I think that what will happen is in the next four years uh, to five years, Ethereum is going from a proof of work where we do the mining to validate a transaction and get paid new Ethereum coins is going to proof of stake, which just also started this week. That's just going to take time before that happens. But our facilities and having this sort of deep uh, density uh, experience now and, and hiring new people, this acquisition New Brunswick will bring in the intellectual capital, I think, to help us go to the next level, uh, will allow us to have these data centers. Now, one of the things we've noticed, if you want to have a smart city like you have in London with, with cameras everywhere and, and watching and monitoring such, you need to have GPU chips, just like gaming industry needs these GPU chips or animation for making movies. So there's a great long life cycle for these. And our facility in Iceland at one time was calculated, it could process 50 million instructions uh, per uh, second uh, if you're looking at films and data. So we think that these, by owning our own data centers down the path, that they will have a different life for them. They'll have a, something that's going to be important as more cities go to smart cities. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. We, we talked about mining and, and gold specifically a little earlier on, and we probably didn't give it enough time. So I want to circle back and talk a little bit about gold specifically. So it's been a really interesting year for gold and gold-backed securities in general. I mean, the price, uh, I believe, touched a record high this summer. Uh, largely been on a, a kind of more, more of a downtrend since then. But I, I saw uh, Goldman Sachs has uh, actually reiterated a 12-month target of, let's see here, so $2,300 uh, per ounce. So firstly, do you think that's optimistic? Are you as bullish on, on gold? Well, when gold peaked in July, August of this year, when you look at um, relative strength, or we like to use sigmas, and what does that mean for your listeners? Uh, what is the rate of change? And you can look at that over different time periods. So I like to look at 20-day rates of change, which is basically one month of trading, 60-day rates of change, which is one quarter, and uh, one-year rates of change. So whenever you get the stars aligned, that is, they're down right across the board, 20 days, 50 days, and one year, are down one standard deviation, back up the truck and buy. Whenever they're up one or two standard deviations, you've got to take some profits. So you had in, in August, they were up over two standard deviations for 20 days and 60 days and uh, one and a half standard deviations over one year. This is going back 10 years of data. So you would expect them then to fall back to the mean or one standard deviation. And that's what's been taking place. Now, you ask, why is that? It's because the 10-year U.S. government bond yield hit a low of 50 basis points, and now it's at 97. So from 50 to 97 is almost a 100% surge, and therefore naturally gold would come down because there's a huge group of pools of capital, institutional money, that's recalibrating their bonds versus gold, and gold is their inflation. So as the yield starts to go up, they lower the gold exposure. As the, as the yield starts, to, the, the, the negative yield starts to rise, then all of a sudden they increase their gold exposure. So I think we're just going into this sort of resetting that, that trade. But I think long term, if we look at the Fed balance sheet and how much it exploded in 2008, 2009, it was $3 trillion. And three years later, gold went from $700 to $1,900. This says that gold can go from $1,600 range was when it really started to pivot here. And it can easily go to 4000 Why? Because there's going to be about $7 trillion uh, added to the Fed's balance sheet. Or put in another context is when Greenspan retired, the federal balance sheet for the biggest GDP in the world was 6% of the GDP of America. So the biggest GDP in the world, their central bank, that their debt on their balance sheet was 6% of the GDP. Today, it's 33%. It's a five-fold. And historically, gold just goes through this, this sort of monetization. Uh, you start seeing get reset. 
the G20 countries, finance ministers, or in particular central bankers, quite often live much longer than presidents and prime ministers. They're in power. And they have their own country club. And sometimes those are characterized like a, car, like a cartel. And, and they meet on a regular basis. And it's all about synchronization of money printing to battle COVID. This is World War III. And it's invisible. So keeping the system and applying um, MMT, modern monetary theory, giving away money free, just keep people employed or give them checks so they can spend money, pay their rent. Uh, and if they do it as a group clustering in different ways in different countries, but they're basically getting incredible money printing, then gold will go through a reset like real assets, like we're seeing real estate in the U.S. up 10% over the year. Uh, art, like Andy Warhol art, it's up also. Uh, it is so important to recognize that those real assets, and then they'll, we're seeing with Bitcoin, it's even exploding even more so. But what happened with Bitcoin versus gold is that the supply of Bitcoin halved in, in May of this year. If you, if you have the, the gold production supply from gold mining companies by 50%, I'm going to share with you gold will be over 10,000. It's a simple math. So it's much more about this having mechanism of future supply that's had to sort of, and then the buyers are always consistently buying, buying, and all of a sudden there's less supply. It has to trade higher. Uh, and, and so we're seeing copper, copper deposits, they've had a restriction in supply because the grades are less and there's been strikes, et cetera. Uh, and China and America are doing all this money printing. Copper prices are at eight year high. So if you have, you know, X dollars going into the system, but you have less uh, copper, gold, wherever the commodity or Bitcoin coming in as a supply mechanism, it resets at higher prices. Yeah, absolutely. And we talked about sort of market volatility there and how, how kind of extreme uh, market movements have been this year. And people talk about gold and it's so frequently uh, referenced as a safe haven asset. So I wanted to get your view on on how how correct, how kind of valid that moniker is. Is, is gold still the foremost uh, safe haven asset in your opinion? Oh, I, I totally, totally. And, and something else has happened here uh, this year. There's a shortage of US dollars for many of these emerging countries for trading. Mm. And, and they could not set up a special repo with the Federal Reserve, another form of money printing, MMT. Yeah. Um, 15 countries were able to get it. So you saw Turkey could not get uh, this special uh, contract with the Federal Reserve. Well, they had to sell their gold to get U.S. dollars. Uh, Brazil, they got it. So immediately they could get a repo with U.S. dollars to facilitate their economy. Uh, and so these are the new mechanisms. And the other part is for investors to recognize that never before have central banks printed money. No one buys it by themselves. Then they go and buy Apple stock or Microsoft like the Swiss bank, central bank is doing or they're buying ETFs since Japan owns 15% of their stocks now. Their central bank of Japan basically owns 15% of the, of the public companies in Japan. The Federal Reserve can't buy individual stock names, but what we saw this year is in buying muni bonds, uh, ETFs, and buying corporate bond ETFs to drive down interest rates so these banks and corporations and, and, and governments, uh, municipal governments, can roll over their debt at cheaper prices. These are all new disruptive parts of capital formation in a zero interest rate environment. So I think that gold plays a very intriguing part of that uh, as, as a 10% golden rule that someone should have, you know, prudent to have a 10% exposure and rebalance each year. Yeah. Okay, absolutely. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, uh, kind of gold ETFs and gold. Well, you mentioned sort of government's exposure to ETFs, which is something completely sort of new and unprecedented. But uh, we've seen global ETFs backed by gold sort of explode this year. I think October was the 11th straight month of net inflows into those sorts of instruments. So that's a trend that meant, uh, yeah, I've got the figure here. Combined total holdings came to a record 235 billion uh, US dollars, which is is extraordinary, really. Um, so is that a trend you think will continue into 2021? Yeah, I think we've just seen recently some redemptions have taken up place of the GLD, and that has to do with this 10-year government bond, um, sort of an arbitrage, they would call it. Yeah. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, that we had a lot of people shorting uh, individual airlines but wanted to hedge it by going along uh, jets. Uh, and you get investors out there, institutions too, that will be long X number of government bonds, and they want to have some gold as a, as a hedge. 
Um, I, I think that this is just temporary. I think that gold is basically, for me, uh, oversold. Uh, and I think you'll probably get a pop here, a, a strong one going into the new year. A gold historically now uh, surges to the Chinese New Year, sells off, and then you get this big rally going into the Chinese New Year. Okay, great. Okay, well, one to watch out for then. And aside from uh, direct gold exposure, uh, investors have been backing mining stocks too. So, so some of the larger names have done pretty well, but uh, so have the smaller caps. Um, I, I saw actually a piece on your, on your blog, Frank Talk, which you're pretty uh, prolific on, by the way. Actually, well, well, why don't we talk about that for a sec? I mean, you've, you've written, obviously, you co-authored that book. You write uh, pretty prolifically, as I say, on the Frank Talk blog. Is, is writing something you enjoy? Is that a passion? Yes, I do. And I have, uh, I have a process that includes uh, investment team that create a SWOT analysis every week. I think we push close to 90,000 people in 100, 190 countries around the world subscribe wow. to some of our global thoughts. And it's a discipline for us to do that. There's a lot of work, but you know what it does? It makes you focus on, okay, what impacted my portfolio this past week? Only three strengths and weaknesses. And then next week, what economic data points coming up that could be an opportunity threat? So we like to publish it because at usfunds.com, it's Frank Talk or Investor Alert. And it's always comprehensive but concise. And that helps us to reflect and think about what's moving Eastern European we have or the China region we have, our global resources, uh, which would include energy and solar energy stocks. Uh, and our newest product has been the luxury goods. Uh, it's interesting enough, luxury goods have outperformed the S&P 500 this year. Uh, one of the wow. biggest holdings there is something like Tesla. We also have a gold quant-based ETF listed on the New York Stock Exchange called GoAU, G-O-A-U. And it's a 30% of the big royalty companies. And then after that, it's a quant-driven looking for revenue and uh, who's the cheapest or who has the strongest revenue and cash flow momentum. What's happened that's really positive in this secular bull market in gold, which started in January of 2019, where the 50-day crossed above the 200-day. Uh, right now, it's gone below the 50-day gold. It's below the t- you know, close to the 200-day, so everyone's getting all worried. But it's done that a couple of times in this secular run in gold. And that happened from 2001 up to 2007. So in that process, what's happened here that's important is that there's better discipline at the gold producers by boards uh, and and management. And the operative word is called free cash flow. Mm -hmm. And and as more senior gold producers demonstrate the discipline of only bringing on projects where there's going to be free cash flow, not stupid acquisitions, not wasteful spending, then these stocks are going through a re-rating. And the S&P 500 really was, a, a, this time last year, had a 2.5% free cash flow yield. Come March, it was gone. Guess what happened for the first time in over 15 years? The 100 global gold producers we follow, the median free cash flow yield went positive. And it's been positive at the end of September. And this quarter mm-hmm. here, gold is much higher this quarter than a year ago. You're going to see, once again, big free cash flow yields. That means rising dividends. That means their stock buybacks. So I think gold stocks are going to show up as being a stronger, more credible asset class outside of gold bugs. And we saw that last quarter with Warren Buffett buying Barrick. And Barrick talks about their free cash flow yield. So does Newman. So does Yamana. So does Grand Columbia. So that's a very important paradigm shift. When that happens, the trickle down takes place to junior mining. And it's so important because explorers, most big discoveries take for junior mining. And there's been no major big 10 million ounce discoveries in over a decade. So it's, it's, it takes this high risk capital. There's no technological breakthrough like they found for oil and gas with frackers. So that process, you need to have risk capital going into it. We've had a shift with millennials this year that are speculating. And that's probably wise because they're young. They can make mistakes and they can take a greater degree of risk. But you're seeing all of a sudden going into these juniors. So what we tried to do a couple of weeks ago is take 10 stocks that we like, that we have put millions of dollars into, in our, our fund shareholders, into these companies. We've done all our due diligence and, and we featured them. And it was on a very structured discipline of 6.4 minutes. Each of them had 20 slides, 20 seconds of slide they could talk for. That's what I call the Petra Kucha model. And, uh, and we let them be, quote, to be known in the capital markets on what makes these companies a great 
speculative risks, but they are risky and they are much riskier than buying a Newmont or a Franklin Nevada as a royalty company. But they do provide where if they have a big discovery, they can go up five, tenfold. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One of the uh, companies that you highlighted in, in that uh, blog post that I, that I mentioned was uh, Magna Gold. Uh, and they caught my eye because their stock's up over 240% year to date. And that was yesterday. I, I'm not sure what happened to the stock overnight. But so lots of the people listening in, and, and we do certainly appreciate the high risk element of uh, investments uh, in these companies. So that's not something to be to be ignored. Uh, but for people unfamiliar with Magna Gold, perhaps you can just talk about maybe not them specifically, if another one's caught your eye um, or, or sticks out to you, please, please do talk about them. But uh, can you talk about the investment case for a company like that, for a junior miner that a, a lot of us wouldn't, wouldn't have heard of? The, the more risk you take, the more important is you bet on the jockey, not the horse. Okay. Uh, you have to know, is that jockey have the highest winning? And there's always fast horses and people like to go bet on, is it going to be the next secretariat to win the triple, triple crown? Uh, but I say that the, it's really, it's, it's great entrepreneurs. And there's a propensity for, for great entrepreneurs in the space. And there's only a real handful of them that find great deposits, develop them. Uh, and guys like Robert Freeland, uh, Ross Beatty, uh, Lucas Lundin. Uh, they just have a, a, this discipline and structure the way they function in Apple markets to uh, get great deposits or uh, smart exploration dollars being spent. So I think when you when we look at these other juniors, we look at them who's technical on their ex, on their team, what's their track record uh, in being involved with discoveries, making the discovery, uh, and that, that tacit knowledge is very very important. The explicit knowledge is. Uh, is pretty key also the geologists and engineers but b is really how what's their what's their what's the word i'm looking for skin in the game at mm -hmm. the same time i've got wins they have many wins and they've got scar tissue bet on the jockey good okay great great actionable advice for people that uh, like myself won't be familiar with that market or completely familiar with it and um, and i said earlier i wanted to return to jet so we we, we might as well finish where we started uh, your, your expertise are in mining, as we discussed, um, uh, amongst other things. But mining, mining is where you started. So, but so to me, I guess jets uh, from from an outside perspective seemed a bit of a departure for you and the firm uh, relative to the other products that you're putting out. So, is that fair? What's your take on that? Oh, not at all. Everything we try to think of is, is global. Uh, luxury goods is very much global, uh, and it's rising GDP per capita. Uh, Jets was uh, also part on the back of the rising middle class of China. And China, prior to COVID, all of a sudden their middle class was bigger than the U.S. I guess lost in a, in a sea of 1.4 billion people, but mm. they were spending more on travel. So this global phenomenon was taking place. Uh, and I know this because I travel globally and I've got to look at all these different countries. So no, getting into the ETF space was to get into it and build a reputation of something that no one else had. There was no other airlines ETF. That's very important. Get a simple yeah. name like Jets made it simple for people to remember. And and B, uh, sort of C was was the sort of um, the global perspective. So it has 30 names that are, uh, are airports. It has Boeing or whoever's got better results or Airbus. Uh, it has Ryanair. It'll have Air Canada. And uh, it'll have the big four here in the U.S., so I, I think it really fits into our global investing. Absolutely. Okay. So um, as you said there, I mean, it's, it's pretty much, well, it is the only sort of pure play product for the airline sector. Um, why do you think that is? Well, you know, it's 10%. It came on the Wall Street Journal this week uh, that, is, that the airlines is directly and indirectly 10% of global GDP. It employs mm -hmm. a lot of high net worth people from making airplanes, repairing airplanes, uh, and right down to uh, people making $15 an hour uh, schlepping luggage. Uh, you know, I, I think that uh, the, the, the U.S. government really showed because they said on previous cycles they didn't realize how important the airlines was for a turnaround in global travel and for local GDP. So one thing they did here was they kept everyone employed. The government, rather than giving unemployment checks to pilots that all of a sudden get laid off, they said, no, we'll give them to you the airlines, and you've got to keep them fully employed, fully training at all times, because 
if you lay them off, then they have to go through FAA and re go through a complete long cycle of retesting everyone, stewards, et cetera. So they realize the importance for global growth and trade. So like I said, it's, it's 10% of global GDP is related to the airline industry. And Jets is the best way to play that global trade. And if the vaccine is, it comes out and it's a great, great success, and the airlines surge back to where they were uh, a year ago, then we could see still another 50% on the upside. Yeah, okay, that's great. Yeah, I was going to ask you what your outlook there uh, for the product was, given that obviously we do have an effective vaccine at least being started to roll, to, to be rolled out. Um, so I guess my next question then is, uh, you know, will this be the firm's first uh, foray into the ETF market? Will it, will it be the first of many? Yes, uh, and I think we're going to, there's a big push now to convert your uh, mutual funds into active ETFs. Yep. And so we'll go to explore that. Dimensional funds and Austin have done it. Uh, other friends of mine are in the process of getting flight funds. So I, I think it's, a, it's more tax efficient. Uh, it's where the future is. The idea of being able to trade your holdings all day long. And I, and I think we developed the skill set. One of the big things I did as a fundamental analyst was really approaching the quant approach and, uh, and using back testing rigorous, even though past performance is no guarantee of future results, it just gives you a better batting average. And, and, and regressional analysis requires lots of computing power. Like if I want to test revenue growth for every day for the past 10 years uh, as a factor of a universe of a thousand stocks, it'll take eight hours to do that. So there's a hundred factors, you test them each night and you find out that certain factors work better from one industry versus another. You also find that you can't make them all equal. It may be only three factors, it may be five factors. And the weighting that you give to each of those factors is unique to each sort of industry and category. All that determination takes regressional work in detail. And that training has actually helped my active fund managers. Yeah, yeah. Well, I could only imagine. Um, and uh, I guess uh, to, to finish on to finish on that, then, uh, and before we move on to our, our final round of questions, which is very much quick fire question round, so I, I won't be taking up too much too much more of your time. Uh, the final question on on the ETF space then is: We cover thematic ETFs uh, on on Opto on a daily basis, very much sort of a, a strategic and key part of of the output uh, over here. Uh, is that is that planned? Is that part of uh, U.S. Global Investors' uh, future product range, do you think? So we want to do things that complement us, that are unique. And, um, and so we will continue with that process. I'm, and where we have an expertise. So I, 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 we have been working on some other ideas. Um, but one thing I do know is that what Jets did, Jets took five years uh, of, of building out uh, the, the, the brand and the awareness with the 40,000 RIAs across America, uh, also globally, um, by PR and educational. We know we've received uh, in a competitive arena in America, no load funds show up there. There's a comp competition and rating system for your educational information. Well, we've received over the past 15 years, 90 awards for this. Uh, so we want to make sure that this, what our educational uh, footprint works. So Kevin O'Leary and I are doing, he's Mr. Wonderful and I'm Mr. Gold uh, on December the 10th, uh, a webcast of what we see on the horizon. Uh, we did one with Jets. He has a huge following. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the perfect way to, to get the product's names out there, I suppose. Um, okay, well, let's, uh, let's, let's finish the interview with our quick fire question round, as I said. So this is something we do with, with every guest. shouldn't take more than two minutes. And it, it's simply a lighthearted way to end the episode. You can answer in as little as one sentence or even one word, if you like. Uh, so feel free to keep it nice and concise. The first question, what is the top mistake investors make? Behavioral psychology. Understanding the emotions. Um, and what's the most memorable moment from your career to date, do you think? In my career, um, being there for the birth of a child. Yeah, yeah, well, hard to, hard to beat, hard to beat. The ultimate of, of, of creation. Um, but I'm thrilled, you know, that uh, my team, myself, uh, we have created seven times now a billion dollar company or fund. Yeah. Wow, I mean, it's, it's extremely impressive. Um, so 
what about if you could go back in time could you if you could give yourself one tip what would it be have faith you have to have this tremendous faith that you that things will unfold because of your work ethic so i always believe that you have to have a focused work ethic and and you have to have resiliency so the only way to have this resiliency is to have this faith that you will find a solution you will that you will keep digging and uh, that that, uh, that resiliency is so key to overcome physical emotional financial challenges setbacks or disappointments yeah okay absolutely so final question and this is when we ask all our guests it's kind of the opto question as it were we we make a point of speaking to the people the investors the traders outperforming markets and outperforming benchmarks so if you could narrow it down or if you could give us just one sort of favorite i suppose what is an investor's best source of alpha if you're not an avaricious reader um that likes to get into the granular it's it's a lot with uh, who you know and i mean by that is is do you read about other high achievers in any category uh and and so coming back to that thought process so i'm very fortunate to as a young man in being learning by mentors like uh, seymour shirley compare on ned goodman toronto when i lived in toronto uh here uh, being around an entrepreneur like uh, Rod Lewis, uh, who I think was producing 3% of all natural gas private, has the largest collection of World War II fighter planes, uh, flies uh, uh, 600 hours a year, flies helicopters, planes, uh, jets. And, and you learn from these people because they have a structure that helps them with their success. So I can know them personally or I can read about them that I know, try to learn as much as possible of how they've had to deal with so many issues in their life. Yeah. So the alpha comes from that. Yeah, okay, great. Well, I think that's probably the perfect place to end then. The last thing I want to share with you is MIT did research years ago. And, and what they found was, uh, and my mother used to say this, that we all need uh, at least three pats in the back for every kick in the pants. Otherwise <laughs> you grow up mostly dysfunctional. But they found out that, that you needed something like seven pats in the back, and that was a good, a good team sports, et cetera. But they also found that it makes you more optimistic. And if you can be that discipline, you see opportunities differently. So if you're always pessimistic about people, places, and issues, then you will miss opportunities for getting alpha. You have to have optimism. Thank you very much, my friend. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right, great. Well, hopefully I get to speak to you again soon. Thanks for coming on the show. Cheers. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports, or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to Co-Fruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time.